If you turn with me this morning uh, to the passage on which today's teaching is based, uh, you can also find it in, in page 8 in your bulletins. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 21. I'll be reading, it's a long passage, so bear with me. Uh, we're going to be reading 17 verses together today, verses 1 through 17. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. The theme of Matthew is Christ as King and the fulfillment of all that we have been waiting for throughout the history of the Bible. And so it's a powerful, powerful passage. Matthew chapter 21. As he approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, behold, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But the law saw the wonderful things. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And this is God's word. Now, we're, we've entered into a, a season called Lent, and if you've ever grown up in a church or, or, uh, or heard of, you know, on Ash Wednesday, which is the start of Lent, people put ash on their foreheads, a lot of traditions, church traditions do that. Lent is the 40 days, or it marks the 40 days that leads up to Resurrection Sunday, otherwise known as Easter. And it's usually a time that's tremendous. Uh, it's, it's, it's intended this way, but it's also a time of tremendous spiritual renewal for a lot of people. Um, and we've seen that. We've seen that here uh, throughout the years at Metro. And to support our reflections on, on Jesus and the gospel throughout this time, we actually take a break from what we currently preach, and we enter into a, a very brief four- or five-week series throughout the period of Lent. And this year, we're looking at portions of the last week of Jesus' life. We often call that the Passion Week of Jesus' life. This is a, a journey his journey all the way to the cross, and as a result, a spiritual journey for us. And we're going to begin today with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday. Have you ever heard the term Palm Sunday? That's what this is. And there are three things we're going to learn about Jesus here. Because verse 5 captures it. 
it's the central phrase in some ways in this passage. Um, it's the prophecy of the king, Jesus, as he enters into Jerusalem. And verse 5 says this, Behold, your king comes to you, gentle. Behold, your king comes to you, gentle. And that's really our three points, because the king has come. The king, he's coming. And it, it applied to the ancient people back then, and it applies to us today because the king is returning. Behold, your king comes. So first, behold, behold, your king comes. He's a bold king. Two, your king comes gentle. That means he's an ironic king. And lastly, he's a shaping king, how he shapes us. He's a bold king. He's an ironic king. He's a shaping or transforming king. First, uh, Jesus is a bold king. Verse 1, he approached Jerusalem. He approached Jerusalem to a, a, a city or a town called Bethphage. Now, right before this text in chapter 20, Jesus encounters two blind men. And these two blind men, they cry out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus heals them. But it's very important because that marked the first time that Jesus Christ was called the son of David in public. Because later on now, in verse 9, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, they're hailing him and they're calling him son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Who is the son of David? If you've lived in the ancient times, you knew who the son of David was because David was the greatest king in Israel. And now keep in mind, kings, they're never elected. You're never elected into kingship. Kingdoms were passed down to their sons. And so these blind men, the crowds, what they're saying is, you are the son of David. You are the ultimate descendant of David. You are the ultimate king. That kingdom that has been inherited and passed down and corrupted and broken, you are the ultimate king that will come and renew all things. You were the final king. And Jesus, he doesn't deny it. In fact, if you look at the end of this text in verse 17, they're saying, hey, these people are hailing you. They're crying out to you. And he doesn't deny it. He receives it. And so it's very important because at this moment, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this, is the, this marks the last week of his life, what we're seeing here is Jesus either has to put up or he's going to be put out. He either has to put up or he's going to be uh, put to death. He's very bold. So on one hand, you see Jesus. We always see Jesus as the humble king. We always see him as a humble, meek king. But on the other hand, He's always bold. He's always humble. He's always bold. There's this passage in the gospel according to John where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees uh, about his claims. And they confront Jesus and they ask him, who do you think you are? Are you greater than our father Abraham? And Jesus responds, Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw that day and he was glad. Very bold. Incredibly bold. So then they say, so now what? You've seen Abraham? You've seen him? And what does Jesus say? Because it makes them so angry, they pick up stones at that moment to kill him. What he says is, before Abraham was, I am. Now, what he's saying is, and this is why it makes him so angry, what he's saying is, I was there before Abraham. Abraham is in the book of Genesis. That means that Jesus is claiming to be, have been there since the beginning. I am, he says. That phrase, I am, ego eimi in Greek. 
That phrase, I am, is the same phrase translated in Hebrew when God told Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell them, let my people go so that they may worship me. Moses asked, when people ask me, when people ask me, who sent me, what do I say? And God responds, tell them that I am sent you. Tell them that I am sent you. It's the same phrase. Very bold, Jesus, what Jesus is saying here. Verse 12 to 13, Jesus goes to the temple. What's the temple? The temple is God's house. He walks right in, and he literally cleans house. He chases everyone out. And what does he say? My house will be a house of prayer. He takes on the, the authoritative role in the temple that only an owner in the house could do. He says, get out, this is my house. What he's saying is what? I am God. And the way he enters into Jerusalem, you see the crowds, you see the branches, the palm branches, you see the temple. He's making sure, he's setting everything up to make sure that you hear it loud and clear, every bit as much as the people in those ancient times, that you hear. Why? Because it needs a response. It needs to be applied. Do you believe that Jesus is king? Because either right now you are crowning him, or right now you are crucifying him. Right now he's, he is Lord in your life, or he's just a liar or a lunatic in your life. You understand that? Either you're going to love him, or you're going to loathe him. You're going to regale him, or you're going to reject him. You're going to crown him, or you're going to crucify him. You can either reject Jesus as a liar and a lunatic, or you're going to cry out Hosanna to the son of David. You're going to regale him as king, as Lord over your life. But the one thing you can't do, the one thing you absolutely can't do, is just conclude that he is a good example, a good moral teacher in your life. That's the one thing you can't do. They didn't, you can't. See, most of us come to Jesus in our world today in this kind of pacified version of Jesus where he's just humble and meek and mild. And uh, you notice Jesus is rarely just meek. He's very bold. Last week, if you were here, uh, you heard him making some bold statements about our sex lives. And, and the thing is, we tend to disagree because he's just a teacher. We tend to say, oh, well, I mean, that sounds, you know, good, but hey, I got my thing going on. I don't quite agree with everything he says because we see Jesus as just an example. We see Jesus as just a teacher. Most of us today come to Jesus and view him as a moral example, a moral teacher. And so what we say is, yeah, I've done some terrible things. I've messed up. Help me to improve or supplement my life to improve my reputation, improve my life. Look, if you messed up in life, Jesus can forgive you. Absolutely. If you feel like you kind of lost your way, Jesus can give guidance. Absolutely. He can be an amazing guide. If you're looking to learn and gain wisdom, Jesus is an amazing teacher but he won't be any of those things unless he is king first in your life. He won't be any of those things. If you want Jesus, you need all of Jesus. And that goes the other way around. Jesus says, I want all of you or none of you. Very bold, incredibly bold. Jesus says, either you will worship me or kill me, but whatever you do, you can't just think I'm okay. You can't just hear me and not respond. Now, for some of you, you've been walking with us in this journey at Metro for a while, and you're kind of confused because you're saying, but pastor has said Metro is a place where 
You can come and just heal, and you can come and just rest and just figure things out and get to know Jesus little by little. Look, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's okay to come. It's okay to heal here. If, if you need to find rest, this is a place where you can rest. If you need a place to heal because we have people here who suffer church hurt, I've suffered church hurt for that matter, you can come and heal. You can figure things out if you're confused. You can get to know Jesus. It's okay to do those things. Because when you do those things, you're starting to hear Jesus. You're starting to listen to Jesus. At some point, you will heal enough where you need to respond to Jesus. And Jesus is very in our faces about that. Because being a Christian is more than about asking Jesus for help. It's more than about asking Jesus for strength or wisdom. It's about enjoying Jesus. It's about being shaped and transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus. It's looking at Jesus and beholding his beauty, his majestic kingliness, on the cross, suffering and dying for you. It becomes very personal. He can't be your savior unless he's your king. Very, very bold. He's a bold king. Now, the second point is that, is behold, your king comes gentle, riding on a donkey. I love this because if you notice carefully, Jesus is doing a lot of things to kind of set up his entry, his own entry. It's kind of like when, you, uh, when you're a micromanager and you set up your own surprise birthday party, Jesus is literally orchestrating his own entry into Jerusalem. The first 11 verses explain those details. Jesus' instructions, the fulfillment of prophecy, the disciples following his instructions, and what happens after the crowd, the palm trees, running right up to the temple. Remember, ancient times, they're very concise. They didn't have, they didn't have the time. There were no typewriters, no word processors. So every word was very, very economically used. The details are very intentional. So here when you see so many details elaborately explained, very intentional. The first three verses, you see Jesus, he sends, he sends his disciples to Bethphage to get a donkey. Now, Bethphage and Bethany, there are two villages very close to each other, right outside the city, right outside Jerusalem. And Jesus knew, knew those towns very well. Why? Because some of his best friends lived in Bethany, the next town over. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they lived in Bethany. Jesus knew them very well. He spent a lot of time there. In fact, after this passage, he goes back to Bethany to stay. So he knew the village. He knew where animals were kept. He knew who owned what. If you know your town very well, you know exactly how many streetlights there are in certain towns. You know that place. You know all the little nooks and crannies. Jesus, he was so well aware of that, those two towns. He knew exactly all the little the inroads and the people who, who owned things and, and where he could get things. But if you think about it, more than that, no other crowd also was able to witness and know Jesus and see Jesus like these two towns. They'll never forget Jesus because they saw his power. No other crowd better than this crowd. Why? Because they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They knew Jesus. They saw Jesus. They beheld the power of Jesus. They'll never forget Jesus. So when Jesus sends his disciples to get a donkey, you're thinking, well, he must have made some reservations. You know, on his way out, he must have told them, hey, I'm going to be sending some people. Make sure you have this ready, right? The owner must have been expecting Jesus to come, but the text doesn't say Jesus had prearranged anything. Jesus tells them, make sure that when they ask, you let them know that I'm going to be riding on it. And trust me, they're going to give it to you. That's what he's saying. 
And so the disciples in verses 6 to 7, they do exactly what Jesus instructs them to do. And by the time you get to verse 8, a very large crowd gathers, and they spread their cloaks on the road, and other people are cutting palm branches. And verse 9, they're singing towards Jesus. They're shouting. They're crowning him as king. And verse 10, it says that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the entire city, it created a huge ruckus, almost the entry of a king at victory. Why? Because the crowd, verses 8 to 9, is not from there. They're from the outside. They went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verses 8 to 9. The crowd arrived when the donkey arrives because all the people were from Bethphage and Bethany. And in a sense, when Jesus asked for the donkey, he was pretty much setting everything up because word travels. He was setting everything up for the crowd. The king is here. The king has come. Jesus is preparing to be declared. It's kind of like a coming out party in a sense. He's preparing to be declared as he enters into Jerusalem as king. And that leads right up to the confrontation at the temple and then the confrontation with leaders regarding his kingship. But what does he show the crowd? Because up until this point, it's power, power, power. He's going to, people who recognize him, know him, king, hail, hosanna. He chooses a donkey to ride on. What? Every time the disciples ask Jesus to take power, now, there are people here, why am I sharing this? There are people here who are very ambitious. They want to go straight to the moon. Incredibly ambitious people. I mean, when you have, a, when you have people who are college-educated, grad school-educated, studied, they have some wealth. They've, they've seen their parents struggle as immigrants through hard times. They understand the value of a dollar. They know how much harder it is to fight for certain positions you have to, it's a lot, it's more than just intelligence and education. I know, trust me, I know, right? There's a lot of political navigating that has to take place. And it's not all about who you know. There's some of what you know, but it's a lot about who you know. And it's a lot about how you connect. And it's all about what, so there's a lot of navigation. We have a lot of ambitious people who are pouring lots of hours into making that happen for them. Here's Jesus, he's already there. How does he enter in? He enters in on a donkey. Now, it's very significant because every single time that, Jesus, that the disciples ask Jesus to take power, they've seen what Jesus can do. They've seen it firsthand what Jesus can do. In fact, Jesus is so powerful that being near him makes you powerful. That's exactly how it's been. So they've seen him feed the multitude. They've seen him heal people, raise people from the dead. They've seen him control the sea. And they say, Jesus, the world is yours. Let's take over. And finally, Jesus says, he doesn't deny it. He says, yes, I'm the king. I am the son of David. Now he gets it finally. So let's get him a war horse because all kings have to be higher than everyone else. He has to be fit for a battle. It's going to be a fight. We need a war horse that's fit for a king. So what does Jesus choose? He tells them, go to Bethphage, get me a donkey. What? Oh, no. They're like, oh, no, he doesn't get it. You're going to send mixed messages, don't you see? You're going to get killed. If you ride into battle on a donkey, you will die. So is he a warrior or is he a servant? Because donkeys, only servants rode on donkeys. Very confusing. What does that mean? I mean, on one hand, Matthew explains Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. 
But what does that prophecy say about Jesus? Because understanding that shows what it says about God and shows, a set, uh, shows what it means about us, how we were created, what we were created to be. This is the high king, the ultimate king, the highest. Hosanna, they said. But he's humble and he's gentle. But kings back then, they were warriors. What kind of king comes on a donkey? Only servants rode donkeys. Jesus taking on the status of a servant. Well, how are you going to win? Any king that goes to, to war, any king that goes to fight, to take a throne on a donkey is going to get himself killed. He's going to lose his life. He's going to die. So if he is who he says he is, then what kind of king is Jesus? That's the question here. That's Matthew's, the entire point of his book. What kind of king is Jesus? This is a king that enters with boldness on one hand, and yet he enters vulnerable. He enters defenseless like a servant, and that's the point, and that's the point. In Revelation chapter 5, you see the apostle John, and in his vision, he sees a throne, and there's a scroll, <clears throat> and the scroll is locked up. There are seals, but no one can open the seals. No one on the throne can open the seals, and so John is in despair, and so he's weeping, and he's weeping, but then the angel says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion, the root, the son of David has triumphed. You see it again. He's the son of David, the ultimate king. He has won the victory. He has triumphed. He is able to, to open the seals, to break the seals. And so John looks, and does he see a lion? No. He says, I looked. He didn't see a lion. I saw a lamb that was slain. So he not only sees a lamb, he was expecting a lion. What he sees is a lamb, but the lamb's all busted up. He's all broken up and, and weak and slain. So which one is it? Is he a lion or is he a lamb? And the answer is, he's both. He's both. Is he bold or is he humble? Is he bold sometimes and humble sometimes? And the answer is, he's both. We are bold sometimes and humble sometimes. We're never both at the same time. Jesus is both at the same time. Powerful, unbelievable, beautiful, majestic. He's a lion by being the lamb. He wins by being slain. He wins by losing. And so he's exalted through his sacrifice. This is a picture of the gospel. This is a, a figment, a picture of the gospel. John Stott says sin are, is, is a servant taking the place. Well, he says something like this. I'm paraphrasing. It's a servant taking the place of a king, God. That's rebellion. When you have a servant rising up to take the place of a king, that's called a coup. It's a rebellion. By the way, that's why we're so miserable. That's why we're always so miserable, because we're still battling God for control over our lives. If you think about the most recent moment that you were incredibly unhappy it's because you had a plan for your life. You had a plan about the way some things, some things are supposed to go, and God had different plans for you, and you're battling him for control. That's rebellion. That's not just like a mistake. That's war, you see. God, God is not a king because he's some evil dictator, some evil tyrant. That's what we're used to thinking about when we see kings. 
And so he's not some miserable, power-hungry, you know, greedy king. God is king because there's no one singly more adequate by far to rule our lives or to rule the world. But ever since we took control over our lives, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, we decided at some point to take control of our own lives. That's when we became anxious. That's why we're so afraid. That's why we're so beat up and we're so dis- depressed and anxious because we can't control the environment. We're just destroying it. We can't control our finances. We're just hurting it. We can't control our relationships, so we hurt people. We can't control our sex lives, and so we are hurting ourselves, you see. We can't control our bodies. Entropy just happens. And so we beat ourselves up. We can't control our work, and so we're overworking. We're trying to keep up. You see that? We are not adequate kings by far. It's not even by a little bit. It's by far, infinitely far. So what's salvation? John Stott says if sin or servants trying to replace God as king, then salvation, the gospel, is God taking the place of a servant. Jesus is both bold and humble. The true king has come. Sin is us saying, I know what's best. But a Christian says, the true king has come. He's going to make everything right again someday. I'm not happy about this right now, but he's going to make everything right someday. If not now, we will see it. There's a wisdom there that I can't see. If there's a power there, there's also a wisdom there. If there's a power there that's being restrained and he loves me, if you put those two things together, then there must be a wisdom there that I don't have that I need to trust. And so he's going to make everything right someday. But it begins with my heart today. It begins with my life today. The king has come. And so when Jesus comes on a donkey, he's saying, yes, I'm king. On one hand, I'm king. But I'm not a king that you expect. I may not even be a king that you want. But I'm definitely, unbelievably and amazingly, I am the king that you need. Why? Because if I only came to give you financial freedom or political freedom or some sort of power today in your life, it's going to make you miserable because you can't rule your life well. You can't. You can't. You don't even know what the next five minutes will bring. You see? But I do. It's going to make you miserable. It's going to make you oppressive over other people because that's what we do with our power. And you're going to use that power to desire significance and meaning to build your own life without me. That's why before you get physical freedom or financial freedom or relational freedom or social freedom, you first need spiritual freedom. That's why the high king had to come down. It's why he had to become born. It's why he became a baby, vulnerable, meek, mild, to set us free. He would grow into a man and set us free from our need to earn the love of others because that's replacing the love that we need from God that we think we can earn on our own. You see how much we're settling? What you need is God's love, but we can't get, we can't earn that. There's something cosmic in us that kind of knows that already. We're already dissociated from God. So what we do is we try to seek it from other people. We just keep getting lower and lower and lower. We're dehumanizing, thinking that that's life. You see that? The high king had to come down. That's why he had to go low. That's why he had to go the lowest so that he could lift us up, bring us back. We often 
would use power or wealth or any of these things to build our own lives, to prove ourselves, find meaning. In John chapter 1, John says right in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word is logos. That means logic or meaning. The Greeks, they were very big into finding meaning in all things, purpose in all things. And John says right from the beginning, you want meaning? He became a man. He became a person. Get close to him. He dwells with us. The king has come. That's the meaning of Lent, by the way. Every week, that's what we're celebrating, what we're experiencing again. He dwells with us. True power became weak. The infinite became finite. The high king has become a humble servant. And he dwells with us. The lion is the lamb that was slain. True victory was found through the loss. Through the brokenness. And the whole point of the gospel is what? That we are saved through the weakness of Christ. That we are given power through his weakness. That we are given life through his death. That we are given victory through his loss. That we are saved through receiving, not earning that victory. Receiving grace. You kind of understand the concept of winning. You understand the concept of winning because um, when you are uh, watching sports teams, you know, if you love a team, you use we language. You didn't do anything. You didn't do jack, right? All you did was what? Watch. And it's like, you did it. You have people crowding around Broad Street acting like fools. I was one of them, right? When, when the Eagles won, we didn't make a single tackle. You didn't strip sack Tom Brady, right? But we were out there. Didn't matter if you were white or black. Didn't matter if you were, you know, whoever, right? You embraced each other, right? Because it was, we won. That's about as close to imputation or understanding what that is. It's because some victory that was won for you became yours. You see, that's what happened. That's the whole point of the gospel. Because if it was your own gifts that saved you, if it was your own strength that saved you, even if you contributed one iota a little bit, you will be bold for sure, but you will not be humble. You will absolutely not be humble. You can't be humble. Or if you're constantly trying and, and earning and striving and you fail, you will be humble, but you cannot be bold at the same time. Or if you're suffering, you're suffering but your mindset is that, is that everything is done or earned through works and you're suffering and you lived a good life, you thought, then you're going to start doubting and saying, maybe I lived a bad life. Maybe it's because God has punished me. Or maybe you're going to say, you're going to get angry at God because at the heart, you did what you were supposed to do and God failed you and he owes you. But a Christian says this, I've been trying too hard on my own. I've been trying too hard on my own strength. I've been battling God all my life for control. And I don't, so I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve new life. I failed God. That's going to make you humble. But you see the cross, and what do you do? You can't deny what Jesus, who Jesus is, what he has done for you. Not for your neighbor, not for the person sitting next to you, but for you. And that has become so deeply personal for you. You're just receiving it. That creates a gratitude. That creates a, a a joy, but what it does is it creates a confidence because you will never lose it. 
That tomb is empty, and it's still empty. You will never lose that love. And so on one hand, you can be incredibly humble because of the gospel. On the other hand, you can be incredibly bold. You're becoming like Jesus. You're becoming like a king. You're living with true kingliness. And you know, even when you're suffering, you know that Jesus is so strong, he's so powerful that his weakness was all sufficient. His weakness is still so powerful that what? That death couldn't hold him down. Even death couldn't hold him down. And it was so powerful to save us that it works through our weakness. It works through our vulnerability. It works through our gentleness. It works through our love. You see, when you're hating somebody, you're just, you're just showing power, boldness without humility. When you're not able to forgive, and I know that there are people here Trust me, I've been through this. If you look at my last, if you've been in my life the last two or three years, you know. You can suffer some incredible things. But to forgive somebody, to love somebody outside of yourself, it's going to take sacrifice. You're going to feel like dying at times. But it heals. There's power there. There's rest there. There's healing there. You know that if you fail, he's a gentle king from this. He's a gentle king. He loves you. He died to save you. And when things go wrong, as a result, you're still humble. You're still humble because you know you're loved by God. You know you're accepted by God. You know that there's nothing that will separate you from the love of God. And you're not being punished because you see the punishment on the cross of Christ. On the cross, Jesus said what? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why? Why did he do that? So that Jesus Christ was forsaken so that you could be embraced. Jesus Christ was disowned by God, forsaken by his own father, God, cosmically. It wasn't just a physical thing. It was a cosmic thing. Why? So that you could be welcomed into God's embrace. The cross is the proof of Jesus' love for you. No matter what happens, you can trust that. You can trust God. Jesus trusted God even to the point of death, and God was faithful. How? He was forsaken. So how was he faithful? It's because it was through that forsakenness, through that brokenness, through that death, through that cosmic rejection, God could be faithful not only to Jesus' son by raising him from the dead, he was faithful to his children, to us, to the church, to you. And when you see that, when you see that, when you truly behold the beauty of Christ in that, Right? You're going to see that your own pride is killing you. You're going to see that. You can start to move away from your pride. You will be gentler. You will be humbler. Because you never deserve this kind of love. You can trust the kingship of Jesus. You can surrender to Jesus. You can submit to Jesus all that you are, all that you have, because he is king, and he is able, and he is wise, and he is gentle. But he also gives you power. He also gives you boldness. Because nothing can ever separate you from the love of Christ. So he's all-powerful, but all-humble, all-wise, all-trustworthy. He's an ironic king. How does that shape you? How does that shape you? If you lack boldness or if you lack humility, it's not a self-image thing. It's partly a self-image thing, but it goes deeper than that. 
It's partly an ego thing, but it goes deeper than that. It's a gospel thing. Definitely a gospel thing. But if you encounter the real Jesus, it's going to make you bold when you lack it and humility when you lack it. That's the high kingship of Jesus who has come down. Then you who think you are high can come down. Because true kingship, true kingliness can go down. If you are trying to just go up all the time on your own, you're not really a king. You're still a servant trying to make his way up. You are usurping others, stepping over other people to get higher. But if you recognize that the high king has come down for you, then you, being built in the image of God, being restored into image of God in Christ, can also be where you are. You can step down. You can go down. Look, the text says, behold, the king comes. Present tense, he comes. He's not far away. He's near. He's intimate. He's close. And he comes. That means that so he is not totally here yet, right? He's not totally here yet. So there is direction. It's not like he, you, you're directionless. He's here, but he's not here yet, totally. That's, this is a passage about Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is what? You read in your call to worship, Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Then the trees, the woods will sing for joy when, when he comes to judge the earth. You ever see palm trees? I just got back from vacation, so I can tell you a little bit about palm trees, okay? The sun is shining. There's a beautiful breeze. It's a nice warm breeze. These trees just kind of wave in the air. They just wave. It's beautiful, right? They're singing. The psalm says they're singing. They're worshiping. But even now, they're worshiping their creator, but even now, it's a bit muted because the entire world is under a curse, in other words, when the king returns, that curse is going to end. Remember Beauty and the Beast? It was a movie, an animated movie, then it became a real movie, it became a Broadway show, all these things, right? The entire world is absorbed in a dark curse, and everyone is just a mere shadow of what they were called to be until the king returns in true form. That's pretty much the entire theme of the story, right? There's this anticipation of the king that will come. And so Chip is a boy, but he's, a, I mean, he acts like a boy, plays like a boy, but he's a teacup. And Mrs. Potts, this motherly figure, is just a teapot. And Lumiere, right? He's a candelabra. That's us. We're cursed. Just a mere shadow of our design. It's why C.S. Lewis called this world the Shadowlands. But Jesus Christ absorbed the curse in full, sucked it up in full on the cross, and he comes. And when he arrives, everything that has ever been broken in your life, everything that has ever broken with the environment and in the world, all the oppression and the injustice that we see, even in our town here, of these folks, our neighbors that we serve, when you look at, this is just Shadowlands, one day it will always subsume by the joy of knowing Jesus, and Jesus and his power will come through that and subsume all these things into his glory. Do you see that? All that will be broken will be restored to its truest form. So we're going to see the world today. You see it in color, but this is just a mere shadow. You will see it in its true colors with colors that haven't yet even been discovered. Imagine being an artist today, looking to that with hope. You hate your body, you're going to have new bodies. You're going to have restored bodies. There'll be no more sickness, no more pain, no more weeping, no more loss. There'll be no injustice. There'll be no oppression. There'll be no racism. In fact, we will all come together and worship the Lord in one voice. Hosanna, the King of Kings. There'll be no brokenness. And the Bible says on that day, the trees will sing for joy. 
That's why the palm leaves were there. It's everyone saying, Jesus is that king. It needs your response. It needs your response. Right now, you can pray your response. Right now, you can pray through your brokenness. Right now, you can pray through, pray to the king who restores all things. Even now, he says, I'm coming soon. I'm coming. That means that right now, he could have just overhauled everything and restarted over. He says, no, I'm coming, and I'm making all things new. He could have just overhauled everything, but he's making it new. He's restoring all things. We can pray that even though we are just muted versions of our true selves tomorrow, you can still reflect the glory of God through prayer, through worship, through community. That's the purpose of the church. And through restoring by being high kings who have come down. That's how you practice this. That's how it shapes you. If the, if the love of the king, the high king who has come down, has truly shaped you, you will be smaller kings who have come down because you have servants who have been raised to the status of king. You see that? Right now, we're just hills. We're just trees, muted, not yet even close to arriving at the full glory that we, that we were designed to be. But behold, the king comes. And so Jesus heals the blind. He heals the leper. He heals the lame. He, heals, he brings in women. He brings in prostitutes. He says, let the children come to me. He's representing the coming king who restores. That's why none of those miracles were incredibly astounding. It's just him restoring all that is broken. And he says, I'm coming and I'm making all things new. Behold, the king comes. Can you imagine as we continue to advance that kingdom, that's why we are in the city, it's why we're advancing this, that's why things like Easter outreach and all the other things that we desire to do as a church, as a body, it's not just enough to do it as an individual, we're called to do this as a body, and as a body to demonstrate and reflect the glory of God and his compassion and his boldness by entering in, but also his peace and his gentleness by, being, by placing ourselves in the status of a servant. Can you imagine your own future glory if you submit to the king and be restored in him? Will you consider that? Let's pray.